good to see you, man. Likewise, likewise. I'm excited to uh, finally get to talk to you. Yeah, remind me, um, have we met, and I'm just, I'm asking because I'm terrible about this and I'm very insecure about it, but have we met before? We have not, no. Okay, um, right. I know your buddies with uh, Cam, Cameron Leach. Um, yeah. Uh, we, him and I do kind of like a sub-series underneath my podcast. Um, oh, nice, okay. So we've gotten to know each other pretty well. Great. Um, yeah, he's he's a cool guy, and we actually talk a lot outside of the podcast now. But um, yeah, he uh, he actually told me probably like six months ago now. He was like, "You should try to get Josh on," mm. and I was like, "Okay, yeah, yeah." So um, the uh, I've I've like you know been up and down with doing record, well, you know, doing episodes. Like I've been busy, and then like. Then I do a bunch of them in bulk, and then I was having trouble getting guests, and it was like, oh man! So now I'm getting back into it with this, uh, mm-hmm. with this mental health series. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I think, I think it's for one thing, it's it's really cool to have you on, um, and uh, I, I think you commented on my original post about it, which mm-hmm. was uh, which was cool. So um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited nice. to finally get to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. I mean, it's a it's a topic that I. I think doesn't get talked about enough. Um, and it's also one I personally have. I mean, I think just as a, as a disclaimer before we get into the, the, the meat and potatoes of the conversation, yeah. um, anything I say is strictly my experience and it, anybody who takes from it, anything other than that, um, you know, stuff I say may or may not work for other folks. Um, it's just been my, my experience. So I just right. wanted to say that up front that I don't expect anybody to have had the exact same experience I've had. Um, so, yeah. And I, I think, um, I think the, I think the episodes I've had before this one, um, have that disclaimer kind of like within the conversation of like, everybody's been really good about saying like, look, this is what, mm-hmm. you know, my experience has been. Um, I've also had people on that don't deal with, anxiety or depression but they deal with add um Mm -hmm. drew tucker was very open about that so Mm -hmm. uh there's a lot the spectrum is so wide um what it which is something that is not talked about a lot um i think musicians cover a, a, a lot of the spectrum particularly because i think we um uh we're pretty emotionally tapped in um i think constantly i think we're always trying to emit what we're feeling through our playing and through our musicianship. So, I mean, at least that's my opinion. Um, and so when, when you say that this isn't talked about enough, um, I completely agree because I've had several, several people reach out and I think this is, uh, something that people want to hear conversations of people's experiences, not exactly looking for help, but at least knowing that they're not alone in these situations. Um, it is a, it's a it's fighting the good fight. It's making sure people feel like um, somebody's somebody's there with. Them. I know for a fact that in my experience, I have I have felt like I was the only one dealing with it. Um, yeah, I mean that's the fundamental uh, rub with depression or anxiety. At least in my case, depression and anxiety is that. Yeah, I mean that's that's why it's called depression because you feel like you're alone. You know, like yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it doesn't. You're not able to sort of. You're not. Depression is not an empathetic. Uh, ailment, meaning it disables your empathy. Like you're not able to imagine somebody else, yourself in somebody else's shoes, feeling the same way you do because what you're experiencing is so terrible. Right. Um, you're just like, well, this nobody could possibly experience this pain that I'm feeling, and that's 
that's self-defeating and it sucks, but that's the reality of depression. Right. And feeling like there is a, it's, it, the feeling of it, that it's a weakness. I think there's a, mm-hmm. there's a little bit of machismo behind, uh, what, what goes on with these kinds of, uh, feelings like if like I shouldn't, you know, I should just suck it up. There's previous generations who would say that, mm-hmm. um, when in fact they probably have dealt with the same thing and they just call it, you know, uh, whatever they want to call it and, and they don't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the modern, the modern age and, and how things are now in society. Um, and I'm actually, I'm actually just trying to contribute to what I'm seeing, which is there is, uh, seems to be more of a push of awareness of mental health. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know, I still don't think there's enough resources personally, um, just in my research, but if I can contribute in some way, which we talked about a little bit last night, um, then I feel like, you know, I feel like it's at least helping in some way, you know? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think it's laudable that you're, you're taking the, the initiative to do that. I would say in my own podcast, I talk about this stuff, but it's never, I've never really hyper-focused a podcast specifically on, you know, the, these issues. So, you know, in that spirit, I, my instincts are always to guide a podcast because I'm a podcaster, but I want to sort of take, take the passenger seat here. And since this is your, you initiated the chat for your podcast and we are going to co-release it, but um, I'll let, I'll sort of let you guide the conversation from where, where you want to start and, and we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, I think someone of your, of your, um, who has your experience within this realm of, percussion and and uh this kind of like niche community to be a part of something that um has set a lot of bars Mm -hmm. and and you've established a name for yourself and you've been a part of people's careers that have also established a name for themselves and so like it's very easy for someone to think like this guy has it all figured out, right? It's very mm-hmm. easy to assume that every time you're up on that stage, you're living the dream or you're in that notable recording, you're in that notable YouTube video. And like this guy literally is doing what we all want to do. And so I, I think, I think it's one of those things where a lot of the curtain is more of the curtains being pulled back on, on, on notable people in all fronts, uh, sports, you know, entertainment overall. Um, what, what have your struggles been? I mean, and, and when did they kind of start for you? I think I can kind of pinpoint when my start, mine started, uh, being extreme, but when did it kind of start for you? The struggle, the mental struggles? Well, I would say, um, Genetically speaking, my family has a lot of, we have a lot of history of mental illness, um, depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety, those sorts of things run rampant in my, my family history anyway. Um, and they've manifested themselves in different family members at different rates and in different ways. Um, for me, the, I feel like depression came before anxiety and I didn't know what depression or anxiety was when they came. And now I'm becoming more aware of how they fed into each other. And for me, the depression was the first thing that came on and it was in grad school when I was at Yale. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I think for a lot of reasons, it was the natural, like, you know, I'm a kid from the middle of nowhere in Ohio and, you know, grew up in cornfields. And then I went to the University of Akron and it was like, yeah, it's a bigger city, but it's, you know, I went to Ohio State first and then to Akron, you know, but it was like, okay, still in Ohio, still like 20 or 30 minutes from my, my, my parent, my, my family, excuse me, I'm having a stroke. (laughs) I'm having a stroke over here. Um, (laughs) But then I went to Yale and it was like, all of a sudden now I'm in a different culture like I'm now on the East coast and mm. this is when like my first experience with, uh, you know, I grew up in a conservative household, listened to Rush Limbaugh all day, you know, like, like that was in my house growing up. And, um, I would, I would say not the type of conservative that is happening now, but, but mm. cause there was no, there was no hate in my house other than what was on the radio. But like my parents never, it was not like that translated to the way my, my mom and dad taught me to speak to people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, right. but when I got to Yale, it was like, Oh, what's a flyover state? Like, I don't, that's weird. I've never heard that term before. And I was yeah, like, Oh, yeah. it's a derogatory term that you're talking about the place I grew up. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. that's weird. You know? And then like, but but then I got into like really intense work at grad school and it was just like, you know, I'm practicing eight hours a day and I'm in rehearsals and all this stuff. And then summer hits and I had this weird like postpartum, like all of a sudden it was over, like that first year was done and there was nothing. Bob went away for the summer. I was like, wait, yeah, I mean, that's it. Like, what am I doing now? And um, so I just laid in bed for a month watching yeah. West Wing. You know, and I, I just could not, I couldn't bring myself to practice. I couldn't, there was like, I wasn't going to pick up a new marimba piece. Like, I just like, that was not even, I felt like I needed to, but I, I just was like, I, I couldn't. Yeah. And so, and then it happened again the next summer and I was playing gigs and stuff. So like I would get out of bed to go play a gig and I would do my job, but I would come back and go right to bed. Yeah. Do it the next day. And then school would start right back at it practicing 12 hours a day. Like it was all then, then the depression was done. I just didn't know what it was. And I, then I get, I get out of grad school and there's all the sort of anxieties of, you know, what you're going to do for a living. Are you going to get a teaching job? Are you going to, Oh man, you know, all those Uh, things. Um, I just, yeah, that is in itself. I could go on and on about that. that You're standing at that crossroads and you're just like, what the, you know? Yeah. And, I joined, I was fortunate enough that the, just the way the cookie crumbled when I was coming out of grad school, Doug Perkins left. So around that time I started subbing with so and got the job with so, Mm. and, uh, I don't want to discount like, yes, it was, I was fortunate. I was lucky. I was privileged, all those things, but I also busted my fucking ass to like get that, get that gig. Um, but then once I got into the to me, the depression sort of like kind of eased once I got a job because then the job was like year round. Like I had something like I was in the market doing things. I wasn't making, wasn't making any money at all, but I had a job. And so the depression went away, but then my dad passed away. Um, he died of Lou Gehrig's disease when I was Mm -hmm. on the road. And that sort of like, I, we flew to Helena, Montana. My dad had been sick for three years. Um, and flew to Helena, Montana. I was getting off of an airplane connecting from Billings to Helena. And I got off the airplane and I was boarding the connecting flight. And my mom calls me and she's like, your dad's going to pass in the next hour. Oh my and, gosh. and he had, you know, he has ALS, so he couldn't speak. Mm. And so I'm just like, I love you, dad. I'm so sorry. And then there's like nothing. As you're boarding a flight. As I'm boarding a flight, you know, to play a Are, gig. Do people hear you like? 
say goodbye to your father? Like, is I that, don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I was yeah. on an old, like, Nokia cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was no FaceTime. It's not like I could. Yeah. I just said goodbye. And then I got on the plane, get to Helena, Montana, fall asleep. And my mom calls me at two in the morning. He's like, your dad's passed. And so I went down into the lobby of the hotel and just started working on budgets for so. Because wow. I, I didn't know there was no, it was the only thing in my control at that moment. Yeah. You know, so I did that until the lobby call the next morning, people come down, presenter walks in the, in the lobby, the hotel lobby and is like, good news. Um, a donor, we've auctioned you off to a donor and you're going to play a house party. Let's go. And, and so like the day my father dies, I get auctioned off to play a house party for a donor in Helena, Montana. Now, there's two things happening here. There's a job that needs mm. to be done and uh, the presenter is w- within his rights to get us work. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, right. but then I'm currently dealing with this other family thing. I'm in a group with four people. You take one person out, the group doesn't work anymore. And so it's, it was more complicated for me at that time to be like, guys, I got to go home. My dad passed because then it meant we were going to lose all this money and I'm the guy running budgets. And so like, I don't know if I made the right decision, but I stayed and played the gig. Mm. But then all of a sudden I would have like a heart palpitation or like my finger would twitch and I would feel like I have ALS. And so like, you know, like I'm going to die the Mm. way my dad did. And so that anxiety would start to bubble up to the point where I was on the road a couple years later in, um, where was it? Oh, Minnesota. And um, Minneapolis, we were playing a show called Where We Live. We were out at a restaurant, started having heart heart palpitations, and I just looked around, and the only thing I could do was get up and leave the room and just walk around town. Yep, I've done that so many times. I I called my doctor the next morning, and I was like, I think I'm having a heart attack. She's like, you're not having a heart attack, you're having a panic attack, and those are two wholly different things, you're going to be fine. Mm. And she sort of talked me off the ledge, I was like, oh, oh. I'm still having an attack, but at least it's not the heart one. So. It's not the it's not the thing I thought it was, and yeah. So then, I, you know, I went back and got on Lexapro, yeah, um, and started doing some talk therapy, and and you know, and I haven't been as diligent with the talk therapy as I should be, but I'm on Lexapro, 20 milligrams a, a day, and uh, it has help me. And, uh, you know, and it doesn't help everybody. And and for me, what it did was sort of like, I think some people describe being on antidepressants or, or uh, SSRIs as being sort of like, you're numb to the world. It's like, I, I don't personally feel that way at all. I feel mm. like what it does is it allows me to see potential trauma triggers objectively and clearly. Yeah. Clearer, I should say. I still have I still have things that are like, you know, yeah, but, exactly. um, but at least I can identify them now and I know what's happening now. Whereas 10 years ago I didn't. And I just thought this low grade simmer I was having all the time was just natural. I was, there'd be times I was on, there was a time I played pieces of wood, music for pieces of wood. And in the middle of the performance, I had such a bad series of heart palpitations that I, I didn't pass out, but I noticeably looked up and everything was frozen for like, what felt to me for like 30 seconds, mm. like nothing was moving. I, I looked down, I could see my hand, but the stick was like frozen. You know, it's like that thing, like when the light is just right, it looks like the stick stays still, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? 
and then it just snapped out of it. And I, and after, after I got off stage and I was like, I'm really sorry guys. And they're like, what? Like they had no idea. And I was like, Oh my God, like what, what if that happens? And I, and it, I can't control it. You know, now my job's on the line, you know? And so anyway, that for me, that was, it was less, I, I had less anxiety about the sort of existential crisis of coming out of grad school and getting a job. Um, or like, I mean, I had the, like, I don't want to be a college teacher cause I don't want to get my doctorate. Like yeah. I hate orchestra auditions cause I'm bad at them and I've taken one and I failed it miserably. Like I had those anxieties and those fears, but for me, the, the ones that were not anyone else's fault and that were strictly mine, like anxiety, um, things I couldn't blame on other people. <laughs> yeah. It's all, <laughs> those, it's all on you. Yeah. Those kind of manifested, um, towards the end of my grad work and then early on in my time was so, um, yeah. What, what, was there any part of the grad school experience, um, like the process of itself during the year that may have contributed to that? I mean, Yale obviously has this reputation of being a staple in, you know, a, a, a lot of aspects. I mean, it has such a history of being, um, having one of the most extensive and notable alumni, you know, it, it I mean, fan size is unreal and has always been. And so was there any part of like, maybe, cause you mentioned a little bit of an imposter syndrome, maybe mm-hmm. when you got mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. but was there ever a process of like, when you were there, like I belong here or was there, um, a lot of stress involved with that experience? I'm just asking more. So, uh, for me, it's like just curiosity because, UNLV is um, has a lot of notable alumni, and, and Dean has been there for thirty years. And you just want to make sure that you're you're not getting there and and being a bump in the road kind of thing. You know, um, was there anything about that experience that may have contributed? I don't. That's a good question. Um, and I again, like I may be, I may not have seen it the way that people are seeing it now. But I was a, the type of student that I knew what I was getting away with. Mm. And as a player in my undergrad, like my teacher, Larry Snyder, Dr. Larry Snyder at the University of Akron was my undergrad teacher. I would absolutely take a bullet for that man. Mm. And anybody who says nay about him, I'll punch you in the face. (laughs) (laughs) But his skill set was really tailored towards um, sort of opportunities and giving you opportunities to play gigs and have exposure to a million things. Yeah. Bob was somebody who would just look you in the face and be like, you have a terrible snare drum roll. Right. And I would be like, yeah, but it's getting better. He's like, yeah, yeah, no, it's sure. But it's bad. Right. (laughs) And I'd be like, yeah. Yes. Or, well, not, not even a like, yes, sir. But just a like, he, in terms of what he was hearing, he wasn't afraid to call balls and strikes. Like, right. Yeah. Not like you missed that note, but it's like, I've heard you miss that note consistently. We need to talk about that. Or you, I think you think you're producing this sound, but here's what's coming out. Let me show you. And guys, you can't play this piece and you need another six hours of rehearsal. You know, those sorts of things that was just like, God damn, it's like going to a good trainer. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I'm sorry, you got to do 50 push ups a day. What, what do you want me to say? If you want, <laughs> if you want, if you want, chest muscles you got to do the work you know? yeah yeah 
Um, so I never, truthfully, there were there were really hard lessons where Bob handed me said things to me that no teacher had ever said. Like in a timpani lesson, when I'm playing Beethoven one, but you know, I think I've got it down, and Bob stops and he's like, "We're going to take this. We're at a fork in a row. We're going to take two different paths here. One is you want to play in an orchestra, and the other is you don't care if you play in an orchestra." He's like, "Because right now, you definitely can't play in an orchestra." You will not get a job playing in an orchestra. That's what he meant. I mean, I can play in an orchestra, but like, you'll never get a job playing in an orchestra right, the yeah. way you sound now. So, do you care about that, or do you want to play in an orchestra? Because if you don't care, and you'd rather play luau gigs over a timpani gig on steel drums, let's say that out loud. And like that, it, that moment of accountability was really heavy for me because I felt like a sliding door moment. Like I have to decide now and no one had yeah. ever made me decide. And I was like, I think I, and it wasn't even a decision never to play in an orchestra. Cause I played with the LA Phil several times with, so, you know, mm. but I did say, you know, Bob, you're right. I think I don't want to take orchestra auditions. And he was like, okay, I'm going to teach you how to teach someone how to play Beethoven one well enough so that if they're in a high school orchestra or a college orchestra, they'll be okay. That's awesome. And I was like, shit, that was really heavy. Yeah. And so like that sort of anxiety, I, I was just the type of student to sort of just like, just to tell me what you tell me, everything good, bad, mm-hmm. ugly. Um, so I, it, Yale was, was something I would never trade for the world. I mean, that time was, crucial to forming it was like that's when the the carbon the coal gets crushed into a diamond like that's right, where yeah. i learned what i could and couldn't do and i i think i'm going luau gig still over uh, over uh, orchestra personally I, but i i i had a similar experience with mine but there was also this what kind of contributed to my anxiety um it was weird I had a ton of performance anxiety in my undergrad Mm -hmm. because I thought I wasn't very good. And so when you start to worry about what all could go wrong because you know what you're, what you think you're incapable of, that will all of a sudden contribute to whatever. But as my grad school experience went on, um, the performance anxiety went away, but the general anxiety increased, you know, I uh, was putting a lot of pressure on myself to be this person to contribute to the percussion world in some way mm-hmm. to make a name for myself and make sure that I'm, you know, uh, making this all worth it for lack mm-hmm. of a better way to say it. So, um, and while I don't feel like I've done much yet, um, there just cause of a pandemic and everything, but there, there was like this, it was weird. It was like the scale of anxiety tipped where performance anxiety was at an all time low. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm sitting there having panic, panic attack and Tom Leslie's wind orchestra rehearsal. And I'm, I have to leave and take a walk around campus. Similar to what you were saying about having to leave and take a walk around town. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's very strange, man. Uh, and what, what I'm trying to do now is learn what, how my brain works, how, what truly are the triggers that, because mm-hmm. apparently I have different levels of anxiety. At least I think I do. Um, 
And just thinking about all these past experiences and just thinking like, oh, okay, well, everybody must go through this, you know, where it's in reality, a lot of people do, but it's so, it varies so much that um, it really is like kind of like a David versus Goliath kind of thing. You kind of have to just, you keep getting knocked down and then you have to get back up and you're like, all right, what just happened? You know, so. Well, this is, I mean, uh this is not for me now as a, I'm 41, I'm going to be 42 on July 11th. So that's terrifying. Um, Happy early but, birthday. <laughs> thanks. Um, but it's for me now where I'm as a teacher, I'm trying to figure out what the ethics are around. Because when you say like you're sitting in a, in a wind band rehearsal, having a panic attack and you got to get up and leave from the band director's perspective, one of his students just got up and left Mm. and he or she, or they have no idea why happens all the time in my classes, a student on zoom, a student zoom screen goes away or they just leave the room in a rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And now they're part of the culture now and the way that we as students and teachers are interacting is there's this, now this sort of underlying, you can't ask why you're leaving the room because if it's for mental health, then that's an unquestionable thing. I'm saying all that as like, it's been a little bit of my experience as a teacher, but also I understand why that approach exists as somebody mm. who has dealt with anxiety in very closed circumstances and wanted to leave the room. All right. That said, the older I get, the more I look back on the times when I had crushing anxiety about whether it be a performance or particular interaction with somebody or whatever. 99% of the time, the thing I learned by pushing through it and sitting and trusting that I'm not actually in any real danger right now has the, the victory party afterwards is way better than, oh, yeah. than the party I feel when I leave the room temporarily to alleviate, alleviate my stress. Why? Like reason being, when I say that, if I was your band director, I would be like, Josh, just be, just stay here, buddy. I know it sucks, bro. Mm. Just crash the symbols. Look at me, me and you don't look at anybody else. I got you. Like, just stay here. That's how you learn about what to genuinely fear and be afraid of. And you get better at it. It's just like your snare drum roll. Like you got to learn, you get better at being yourself. The more you force yourself to be yourself Mm. and, and, for me, when I get anxious and I have to leave the room, I'm running from something because I don't want to deal with it in the moment or I can't. And and that's just to say, like, sometimes you leave the room. Mm. But what I <laughs> but I picture leaving the room the same way you feel when you're running and you're out of breath and you're like, yeah, I'll stop now. Yeah. It's like you can keep running. I'll, I know I can keep running, but I don't. You know? Yeah. And so I think in these moments when you're having anxiety, like, think of it as like, yeah, your brain is out of breath. But it's out of breath for the wrong reasons. So just mm-hmm. reteach your brain how to like. I, I take hot yoga sometimes, and it's fascinating if you when your heart starts to race, you can act and and your you you actually hijack your breathing and think of it as a separate thing from your heart rate. Then your heart rate sort of comes back down with your breathing always. You know, like if you're just freaking out and you just start, and you really just focus on that things realign. And then I forget about it and things get back out of alignment, yeah. but it's like, but I got to practice that. That's a skill. It works, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and so yeah. like 
that's something the older I get, the more I'm trying to, um, trying to push myself to do. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that must be why I suck at running then because well, like, I suck at, I suck at running too. And I'm, you know, but it's, that's yeah. the things, this is why I hesitate sometimes to give this advice to students who are dealing with this stuff because I don't, I, I don't want somebody to feel like they're alone and that they just have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But at the end of the day, it's on you. Yeah. I completely agree. You have to, you have, that's, it is truly a like personal responsibility thing. You can have friends checking in with you all the time being like, Hey, just love you. I hope you're doing great. But if you don't actually take the step to do that for yourself, then it doesn't matter. And, um, and I say that, for any young students now who are listening to me and they don't believe me, I'm only a 42 year old version of you. Like I was 19 and I went through the same, I'm still dealing with it. I'm 42. So, you know, yeah, I, 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 and it's funny because, you know, uh, whenever I think of like being that person that, you know, people, you know, need the check on and everything like that. I always feel like such a, like a burden. I'm sure a, a lot, I'm sure everybody does, you know? And, and when it comes to, when it comes to like this personal battle, fighting the good fight within yourself, um, there, what do you think about it being a, a an artist kind of musician thing that a lot of people deal with this? Do you think it is be like I mentioned before that we are in touch with ourselves and we are trying to convey emotions constantly through another medium. Do you agree with that? Because that's the only thing I can really think of. I I've, I've also met artists and musicians who don't deal with this, or at least they have hide it extremely well. Um, or they let it completely out through their art form, Mm -hmm. which I, I have felt before, but it has never been a 100% kind of like, you know, let's leave it all out through this. Do you agree with that? Or am I just kind of generalizing? I'm I'm not sure. I, yes to all of it. Mm. Yes, I agree with you. Yes, you're generalizing, but I don't know necessarily that that's a bad thing right now. Um, my, my, My initial reaction is that in my experience... Um, I've noticed that anxiety and depression are a human thing and they exist in accounting. They exist in construction. They exist in grocery store baggers, you know, like it's a pretty common trait amongst us as people. Um, I think musicians, uh, and again, I'm speaking from my own experience. I think musicians oftentimes, put too much or too much expectation on what making art how making art is going to make them feel mm. like you think that it's going to be this thing that is going to be the salve for you all the time when you're sad or when you're happy or when you want to you know i have a party on saturday can't wait to make music with you all but what happens if you have a headache mm. <laughs> what happens if your dad dies <laughs> you know like well. you have to is it doing the thing then that you thought it was going to do? And 
so that to me, I think I've, I've never personally placed a lot of like emotional baggage on the result of my art making. Um, and I, I don't know other people are different. I've never been a savant. So like if I'm going to make an awesome piece of art, it's going to take me eight hours of work and practice. Oh yeah. And that's not fun. Mm. And I don't derive like emotional. I don't feel like I've helped the grass grow healthier by sitting in my room and practicing scales for eight hours a day. Like that's me where I do derive where this satisfaction comes from is knowing that I've done all this other work and I've, I've helped these things move the, the thing forward, but we're actually, I've, for me, the emotional satisfaction, the, where I feel like I've, I light up as a person is doing podcasts, yeah. talking to people. Which we, you so, and I are very much the same in, but right. you know, but does that mean I should quit music and only go into podcasts? Like, I don't feel that way. I just, no. sometimes I feel like I take a more utilitarian view to, uh, art making where the process is the reason to do it, not the result. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I, I really want to embrace the experimental, the true definition of experimental music, which is you don't know what the result's going to be. You roll the dice. Some of it's going to be great. A Caroline Shaw album that we just released. Super proud of it. Feel like it was a home run right over the center field fence, you know, mm. but other projects of ours, I'm still proud of like a gun show that we did. Maybe, maybe some swings and misses. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, and so that, not that that project didn't bring me any artistic satisfaction, but it was not, it just was not, it's not puppies and flowers all day. Like it's, you're building rigged stages and like (laughs) plugging cables in all day. And then like, you know, 14 people come to your show. And so like, it's for me, I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think I would just say that musicians will find more satisfaction in what they're doing if they are going to school to study the process rather than to study the and to get to the end result. The idea Mm -hmm. that you would want when you said like, Oh, you're somebody I'm, I want to do exactly what you're doing. Don't bro. Do not. I I highly recommend you do not. Why? Because I'm doing it and there's not enough room for two of me. Yeah. (laughs) There's barely enough room for one of me, you know? And so like what, what I think I did was to embrace the process all along the process of making the process of doing the process of building relationships with people, the process of having a bad, a bad fight with a bandmate and solving it and resolving it, having horrible anxiety because of a budget discussion that went horribly wrong. has nothing to do with art getting through that. That is the process by which I derive satisfaction. The, the playing show at Carnegie hall in December, that's going to be an hour and 27 minutes out of, a year mm. of work. And so the process is 98% of it. So study that. <laughs> That's yeah. what we should be going to school for. That's the vocation we're studying is the vocation of, of learning and doing things. Um, so that's my way of saying, I agree with you, but, but I would, I would put away the broad brush of artists are inherently emotional. Cause I don't think I'm, I'm emotional, but not because of my art. I'm emotional because of a million other factors in my life. Makes sense. Um, yeah. But I also don't want to be glib. Some people also, to be clear, art is my job. Mm. It's not a hobby. 
it's how I derive 100% of my income is through teaching art and making art with soap percussion. So there's privilege to that, but I also, there's anxiety because I can't just do everything I love. Yeah. Because <laughs> the market is going to call for a specific thing at a certain time. A composer might have a real, like Caroline Shaw right now is like a lot of people are talking about her and I, and I'm totally happy. To, I pinch myself if I get to tour with, with Caroline, but there might be another project that, you know, isn't in my aesthetic wheelhouse that all of a sudden people want so to do a lot. Okay. Yeah. Great. But part, part of the, part of the gig. I mean, it's part of know. the gig, but if I was like my brother, uh, not, not my brother's a bad example. He plays music full time too. But if music, if you want to like, if you're an improv musician and you're like, man, this is, I really just want to get together with my friends and do this. I don't want it to be tap, tapped into the market economy. Stop having anxiety about that. Just don't worry about it. Yeah. Go make your art. Don't have the expectation that you're going to make 75 grand a year with health insurance and benefits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But and certainly you can fight for that, but if your expectations are I'm going to have a picket fence and a 401k and a Roth IRA playing improv music, I think it's important to just sit down and call balls and strikes on some of that stuff. Because that will that will influence how you how your anxiety manifests and whether or not it's appropriately sort of applied. Do you think there's a there's a point you need to get to? Like nobody, I, I don't know. People don't really start out. I guess some people do. Well, Cage didn't. Do people people can't really start out trying to do that. You're not going to get trying a ton. to do what. Like exper- like experimental, like completely improv. Like this is a this is a very avant garde, completely improv thing that I'm doing. Because because like even then, with something like what So has done over the years is um, establish repertoire, be be very very good at the craft, and and have a standard in which we as percussion, the percussion community believe is set. Um, and the population within experimental and improv, the group, maybe like art piece, art, art music is very, very small. Nobody can really start out doing that. I, I believe probably because as far as like the other parts of the process go, like Steve Schick has a gig. Mm-hmm. He did he did a part of a process mm-hmm. uh to get that gig. Well, actually most of his process was now he can do what he wants. It's almost like we you and I talked about Rogan. Rogan really is doing the jobs that he wants to do now because he had to go through doing a sitcom and you know doing stand up on the road and all this kind of stuff. Now he's doing the three jobs he wants to do because he's got 100 Ms in the bank and he's good. But, but I, like, would, I would put one distinction in there in that the podcast, which is now the thing that's netting him $100 million a year, was the one thing he was doing that no one else was doing mm-hmm. before anybody was paying for podcasts. It was True. just – it was a thing he did because he loved it and the process of doing it was why he kept doing it. And he says that all the time when he does a podcast. He's like – this podcast, the 1500th episode is very similar to the second episode in terms of it's just Joe like talking to friends, you know? Right. Yeah. And it became a thing because of the process. He didn't just do 30 and well, like that was fun. No, he did 1500 of them. 
And after yeah. doing anything 1,500 times and committing to it in the, the way you feel that it's most genuine to commit to, you're going to get good at it. And like, so that's the thing I don't, that's why I posted that thing about Rogan is like, you're every, not everybody, but you get the sense that you're discounting the pro like that Joe is just this person who woke up, did fear factor, did this, did that, did this. It's like, no, 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 no. It was like 12,000 days of decisions mm. every day, you know? And to me, that's the thing that like, it's easy to look, I'm not like pushing back on you here, but like, I, I, I want to put some things in context. It's easy sure. to look at soap percussion as like a stained glass window. That's like, Oh cool. Look how beautiful it is. This is here and this is here and this is here. And that's now we're all looking through that window and this is the way the picture is. It's uh, sorry, just real quick. I imagine you like with your, with your Indians hat on and like, you're sitting there like Jesus with your hands out anyway. So De- definitely ahead. don't compare yeah. to Jesus, but, but the, no. uh, got the beard, the, 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 that it's an illusion. Yeah. Like it's, it was thousands and thousands of days of hundreds of meetings and emails and budgets and arguments and joyous days and days of concerts and cargo van loadouts. Like, yeah, Paul Lancey's threads is part of the canon now, or it is time or Malacrotet or whatever. But I wish with every time somebody bought a score that you saw a running tally of how many times so percussion loaded in two marimas and two vibraphones. Yeah. You know, then I would think you'd be less impressed with how we play and more impressed by the fact that our backs haven't blown out, <laughs> you know, like herniated disc all over. The yeah. Place. It's just like, we've done 1500 shows in the way that Rogan's done 1500 shows. Now in music, that just means that those muscles have developed to where, we're good at playing these pieces. We're good at commissioning new pieces, but the process is not the process is what got us there. It's, it wasn't some grand vision. It wasn't some like, we're going to, you know, in 2001, we were like, we're commissioned Paul Lansky, David Lang, Steve Reich, Caroline Shaw, Sharon. Like it's not all how it happened. Not at all. Mm. And I think students see a thing or they see a basic thing or they see a Vic Firth video or they see a, Pearl ad or whatever, and it's like, oh, well, that's a that's a finished product. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> that is that is three thousand days plus today. Yeah, and we're still and it's making still going. Des- we're still making decisions today that will affect. And so, yeah, take take. You're welcome to see what we've done as like a canon is being developed, or blah, this thing is being this path is being charted out. It's only because we just picked up some machetes and started hacking away. Mm. and we were the guys, yes, we practiced all that stuff, but like, we're just, we have four people who kept hacking. And I think a lot of people just stop hacking because they get, they think like, oh, there's never anything back there. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, you're not going to find anything back there if you don't keep hacking. And, and yeah. like, we just kept going at it. And um, I don't know if I've answered your question, but. I forgot what my original question was. But you know, but but what 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 you are saying is fascinating in a, in a sense of, um, especially, I just think, keep thinking about how much has been missed out on or hasn't been done yet within what we do, just because people stopped hacking. Because like it's not exactly the easiest thing to do this full time. I mean, Cam, I I. I freaking get, draw a lot of inspiration from Cameron Leach because mm. he is not giving up on doing this 
as he wanted to. He's mm. talked about on offstage. That's the only reason why mm. I'm saying that. He wanted to, but he's not going to. And uh, to me, he's he's embodying that what you're talking about, just hacking away. And like, think about like what what is yet to be discovered. And I and I hope people continue to keep hacking away. I mean, I I am going to with this and everything, and I'm and you know, it's going to be whatever I do. That's my kind of personality type. But um, I just keep thinking about like maybe what's missed or or like what's going to need to cycle back around, just based on it's really daunting to do this. If that makes sense. I totally. Know. Yeah. I mean, and I would say just an addendum to what I said, the, this past year has, my anxiety has been really bad. Um, and I think I'm able to, it hit me the other day. I was, I think as to why, um, like early on in the pandemic, like in June, it was actually around when George, George Floyd was murdered and like social media was on fire and the world was yelling at each other constantly. And, I froze and just was like, I I can't deal with this. And I was like, I don't care if I get COVID, I have to go to the local pub and talk to somebody, Mm. you know, not just talking to my wife is great, but it's like, you know, she's working, she's got a job. I, I just need to get out of the house and see somebody else. And so like, I was the guy at the bar when the CDC was like, don't go to a bar, you know? And I'm there with my mask on and just talking to somebody, a bartender about, I don't give a fuck what, just like, isn't, aren't the leaves great? You know, like, (laughs) Um, because I think I've learned that I prioritize relationships over everything else. Like my ability to have someone, my desire to have someone in my life who I might need for something, whether it be just a friendly conversation or an emergency, my desire to have that net be as wide as possible, um, is actually what helps my anxiety. And I found the more I went out to just talk to total strangers, like go to the bar, go to Home Depot, whatever, like it made me feel better. Yeah. And I think when it comes to art making, one of the things that worries me and gives me anxiety about not your generation, but the generation below us right now that's sort of been forced to traffic in social media as the primary way of building relationships, I just see like, I see a shitload of relationships being built with like match stick match sticks, like taped together that are flimsy and are going to catch fire at any given moment and fall down. And because social media gives you the sense that you have a relationship, but it's not really when it comes down to it, it's not the same thing. And Mm -hmm. so I, I, I'm grateful. I I think for anybody who has anxiety or, or feels like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do with my career. I don't know what to do with, I don't want to be in an orchestra, but I don't want to teach at a college and I want to be a band director, but everybody says that's the lame way out. But I love teaching sixth grade band. Yeah. Like I heard that I was an ed major. I heard that all the time, but sixth grade band was like one of my favorite things to student teach. And if so, went away tomorrow, I would absolutely teach fifth grade clarinet and have zero qualms about it. Yeah. And so I think what folks should do is just keep building alliances with people, even people you disagree with. Um, because those are the people when you get out of school that are going to be running an art gallery that might hire you to play your gig. They're the people that are going to be running the Montessori school that needs an education, a musical educator. Um, they're the people that are going to be running the local concert hall. They're the people who are going to be decide to be accountants someday for nonprofits. And, you know, your podcast becomes so big that you need 
an accountant and all of a sudden the person that you got in a fight with in chamber music and thought you were going to hate forever 10 years ago is now the person doing your books. You know, like that approach gives me less anxiety on a daily basis. And I think we'll give, if a freshman in college is sort of taught to, to really embrace the process and to build relationships as the primary vocational goals, bro, I think, I think not only the music world looks different, I think the world looks different. And I think, yeah, I think the music world actually has fewer people in it, but it has more people in it who actually know that they should be there and they want to be there. I think there's a lot of people in music who feel like they should be there because of a family member who was a musician or they, they had fun in band. But it's like, if you really derive pleasure from like mowing lawns, go mow lawns. Yeah. You will be a happy clam when you're 81 years old. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I hope that, I mean, I don't know if that helps at all, but like, that's, no, that's, that's the thing I wish young students now would, would focus on less results oriented and more process based and build your tool set. Yeah. I mean, I was sitting down with some friends the other day, uh, high school friends, none of them play drums, none of them play music. Uh, we've had this group text go on for about 10 years now. Like it started out on iMessage group text in 2011, 2012, and now it's in group me. And like, it's just, it's, it's fun. You know, it's like 10 or 12 of us and we're still talking through every part of my life. They've been there. So, um, it's it, one, one disappointing factor of the other day was that, you know, I'm sitting down, I'm the only one not on my phone. And, you know, even, I hate to sound like the old man river here, but like, I wish that weren't the case. You know, I, I, I used to think, and you know, social media has done a lot for me and, you know, I've gotten gigs off of it. You know, it's a good way to market yourself, but there's a lot of people don't have that necessity and they don't have a governor set when it comes to their interaction with it, their usage. Um, and I was really disappointed, man. I was disappointed in the fact that I'm the only I'm the one looking around and I'm like mm-hmm. you know, I I kind of wish it was like when nobody knew what Instagram was and we were just sitting around talking about whatever sports, you know, anything. And um I I can only imagine especially since now if people go the academic route like we did. Um you know what is what is a college experience going to look like? Because I know mine, my undergrad especially, was right around when social media was taking off. And so, when it comes to like going uh, through a college experience where there's going to be a lot of maybe a virtual aspect, um, how much is that going to change our community? How much is, um, you know, the fact that. Because I feel like the relationships I've built over the years, I, I where where would I be without them? You know, and I'm sure you feel the exact same way. So, and and it, it breeds a certain awareness. Like, like yeah, I've messed up in in you know how I've interacted with people in you know in a disagreement or whatever. But having that experience breeds a certain awareness, as opposed to like having awareness of like should I comment this, should I post this kind of thing where you're completely in control of like how you react. Mm-hmm. And sometimes in real life in real life conversations, you got to work on how you react. And so I, I'm just very curious to see 
how that's going to be moving forward. Um, I'm not, it's not that I'm, I'm feeling, I guess, negative about it, but I hope it, I think everything works in a cycle. I hope it cycles back around to where like people are going to desire for, um, that face to face interaction. And uh, I think that awareness is kind of going away. One thing to turn kind of like the positive side of my mental health issues, um, my anxiety, for instance, this last anxiety episode I went through, talking about awareness here, um, The la- when I got out of it and you have that relieving moment, you take that deep breath and you're like, my chest isn't tight anymore. I don't have to go sit in a room by myself mm. anymore. I can Now I have this awareness of like what really makes me feel good and like that awareness of, you know, general awareness about life and and one thing that i'm thankful of that my mentors have taught me have has been general awareness that breeds into playing or into networking or whatever conversations Mm -hmm. like i'm doing now um so it's all about perspective i think when it comes to when it comes to this kind of like awareness thing of like taking these relationships like we're talking about and who knows what they'll breed into but how I just wish it didn't feel so down. Like it, it didn't feel so negative going forward about like how we're going to interact with this. The amount of people that I know that I've seen that are friends with each other in real life that are in arguments, especially over the past year and a half are in arguments on social media in front of everybody. It's sad. It's yeah. Well, that's why I don't, I mean, I, I fall prey to it sometimes, but I mm-hmm. generally like, I don't, if people want to fight with me on a thread, I invite them on the podcast and that usually shuts the comment thread down Exactly, because most folks don't want to, the problem with social media is it's, it's passive. Like mm-hmm. you can say stuff, you don't have to own it. You don't even really, your face isn't on it. You could be taking a crap and say something horrible about somebody and it like, nobody's going to know. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And I would say that I agree with you in general. Like there are ways though, that I think humans are going to have to, you have to be actively engaged in disengaging from social media. So like sometimes when so goes on the road, if we go out to dinner, it doesn't happen as often as that, as I think we'd like, because nobody wants to be that guy. But like, if you just put all your phones in the middle of the table, first person to check their phone buys around. Mm. Like in my steel band class at NYU and at Princeton, no cell phones. If I see you with a cell phone, I'm taking it and you get it back at the end of class. And it feels like, so like third grade, but yeah, but you like, have to, I'm not, I mean, no, you're not allowed to read your music off your phone. Mm. Like that sort of stuff. Like uh, for me, it's a little bit of, I need you to, I need you to show buy-in to what's happening here. Get a little yeah. skin in the skin in the game uh, for this particular class or this conversation. And it's one of my favorite things about doing podcasts. It's like, and playing concerts. They're the two times in my life where I don't have this on. Like, and I'm not actively checking it. They happen to be the two times in my life when I have the least anxiety, <laughs> you know? I mean, so it's not rocket science. Exactly the same for me. And I'm, 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 I think I'm like 55 episodes in 60 maybe. Mm-hmm. And I, I go, I go back and listen to the ones from when I literally was just doing it for fun. Like, you know, like literally just like, Hey, you're my friend. Mm-hmm. Let's do a podcast. You know, um, not, not that it's, it still has an element to that. It's not like I'm, you know, 
you know, have like this agenda or anything, but, um, I go back and listen to those and it's just so like, it feels like a completely different era. I don't know if you go back and listen to your early episodes, but it's just like, (laughs) you're trying to like learn how to guide a conversation. You're learning how to, uh, which is a skill that I did not anticipate that I needed to develop. I'm sure you feel the same way, but I mean, (laughs) it's, but it's just like anything else. I mean, you, I'm 200 and I think if you like my podcast, this is like the 213th constant honesty podcast. I did like six with Yuko for this other podcast, Pan and Tune. And then for the, the Reich uh, drumming at 50 website that so did with, with Russ Hartenberger at Nexus, I did 52, 52 chats for that. Mm. And I'm really like the, the Reich thing was like, yeah, I'm talking to, I'm talking to Steve, but I'm talking to, you know, Judy Sherman and Joan Labar, like people who premiered drumming and like, like these are people who are heavies in the field. And I am really grateful that I did 200 podcasts prior to that because, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's having a conversation is a skill set. The art of conversation. I'm not claiming to be a black belt at it, but if I, if you go back and listen to the early pod, the reason Adam Solinsky is the first podcast is because I picked someone I knew who could talk for two hours and I never had to say a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, and it, you know, it's not, and I'm, I'm being glib here because I, you know, it's Adam and I love him to death, but like it, it was a great conversation, but I was, I was thoughtful about who that first person was because I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't want there to be dead space. And then the second podcast was somebody I knew, I knew well. And it was like, okay. And I think like, I don't know who the first person was, maybe Joan Tower or somebody that I just didn't know at all. Um, and it was terrifying, but you, you know, I got better at it. I mean, I, yeah. I guess I could go back to the third podcast. The one with Steve Reich was like my 30th, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, I looked last night and it's the mo- it's like, t- it's had 1200 downloads. You know, it's the most listened podcast that I've done. And, I wasn't good at him. You know, I don't, I, I'm horrified to remember, look at what I talked with Steve about in his living room that day, but I'm better at it now. I'm better talking to you than I was talking to Steve. And that is just a product of the process. Like you cannot learn how to talk with people long form consistently without a shitload of dead air. Until you do it, until you do it, and (laughs) you have to learn, learn not not even just learning how to talk, but learning how to listen, learning how to put your agenda aside if the person you're talking to says something far more interesting than what you wanted to talk about, you know, and then how to bring the conversation hopefully back to a smooth landing, like the like Elon Musk space rocket, you know, like so Falcon Nine baby, so it doesn't blow up when it, you know, whenever you wrap it up, and you know, some days are better than others, but. This is the this is the problem I have a little bit with the like uh, the anxiety that people have. They're like, I'm never going to do it, and that's proof that the blah blah blah. There's there's this this is keeping me out. It's like maybe, maybe, but I think you're underestimating. Like I think sometimes your anxiety is perceiving a problem that you actually have control over. Yeah, and maybe it means maybe the maybe the way to solve that problem is to go have coffee with a composer friend of yours and just start that fuse burning. You know, you never know when that bomb's going to go off, but just light as many fuses as you can. I think that's my point. And yeah. just, and, and, um, trust that enough of them will go off if you are diligent about it. Uh, we, me and some buddies are doing a little percussion group project and just, you know, just to 
get some pieces out there and just ultimately we just want to play. Mm-hmm. So that's like why we're doing it. Um, you know, some, and some of them are thinking really far ahead, you know, like, you know, we need to commission some stuff like that. I was like, actually, why don't we, why don't we provide an example for pieces that haven't been recorded yet? Or like, it doesn't matter how hard they are. Mm-hmm. Like, let's make a good product for people to reference for them, for their sixth graders or their, or their ninth graders or their 12th graders to play and like, you know, provide that kind of that product for them, you know, and, and it's good practice for video editing, which mm-hmm. is daunting in itself. But, um, you know, I, but it's, you know, it's lighting that fuse. Like you're talking about, like this could blow up. It could be a dud. It could be, it could take, a, it could be a long fuse, you know, so it could blow up my other projects. Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, I kind of felt that recently with, um, you know, even when all these times where I'm like, man, this podcast, it's it's not pulling the numbers I wanted to pull and everything like that. But there's just something that always kind of kind of pulls me back to a sense of I, I got to keep doing it. I don't know why. I got to figure out a way to keep doing it. I hate, you know, I, I wish you and I were face to face right now because mm-hmm. I think it's a and, you know, this is a completely different conversation um, when it is like that. But mm-hmm. uh got to keep doing it. I don't know. I, there's got to find a way. I'm got to ask people who, you know, I got to keep asking people, got to keep doing the thing where, um, where, you know, like maybe I get ghosted. Maybe I don't, maybe they say, no, who cares? Got to figure something else out, you know? And I think that's all kind of breeds back into what we're talking about. And I think it does help me mentally because it, you, people are so interesting, man. That's what I've come to realize about this. Like, Talking with Casey Cangelosi on one of I just messaged him, you know. Mm-hmm. Same with Gene Kaczynski. I was just like, you and Tim want to come on, you know, kind of thing. And you figure it out from there, and it's just... People love talking about themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's the, like, there's a bottomless pit of people to talk to. And if you can ask the right questions... Do you listen to um, Terry Gross at all? Mm-mm. She's an NPR um, interviewer, conversationalist. Um, but she... She's like the the best way to start any conversation is to say, "Tell me about, tell me a little bit about yourself." Yeah, yeah. And I've sort of like changed that. Like my own version of that is, "Can you tell me about Baby Josh? Like, what got Baby Josh into?" And usually, like, somebody's like, "Oh yeah, cool," and like they think they're going to tell me something about how, like, you know, Baby Aaron, you know, saw a guitar when she was three and her whole life. And it's like, no, normally, what happens is like the most interesting thing about a person is usually something that happened when they were like seven or eight mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, my dad was an astrophysicist and he played harmonica. And then, you know, and then I went to grad school and I'm like, Beep. <laughs> your dad was an astrophysicist <laughs> and he played the harmonica. Can we talk about that for two seconds? You know? Um, and it's like, like that little phrase has, cra- that's how I started every Reich podcast for the drumming at 50. If you've watched any of them, I usually like my first question is, can you just tell me about baby Steve Reich? Like what got baby Steve into music? You know? Yeah. And so, but, but again, it's like, that's something I've learned and you have to, and I, and I would say there's currency in emotional peace. Like that's a paycheck. Mm. I mean, if not getting a paycheck brings you anxiety because you can't pay your rent and doing a podcast alleviates your anxiety, but you still have to pay your rent, then your anxiety has gone. <laughs> yeah. That should make you paying your rent 
a step easier, you yeah. know? And so like, I, you know, then go mow lawns, deliver papers, do whatever you got to do, but like do it. If you, your anxiety is the thing that's actually in your way. And, and Larry Snyder, when I mentioned him earlier, just to bring it back to him, he talked a lot about performance anxiety through my undergrad and it, it, performance anxiety, your performance is potential minus interferences equals performance. And mm-hmm. so your potential is like, you on your best day when the practice room shut and no one's in the building and you fucking nail it. And you're like, mm. <gasps> damn, no one was around, you know? And then yeah. you go and you, you walk on a concert stage, you walk out and you're playing Mirage. And the first note you hit is an A natural instead of a B natural. And then all of a sudden you're in your head for the next 30 seconds. and You don't remember what you just played. That was my graduate recital, <laughs> at Yale, Dude, you know, right I, in front uh, of Bob Van Syce. So like those, but it's true. Like if yeah. you can figure out what the interferences are, Maybe some of them you can't get rid of. Maybe you can't get rid of the baby crying. But if the if the lighting in the room is, is an interference for you, then ask them to turn the lights off. You know, like, get that shit out of your way if you can. Yeah, yeah. I, I That's funny about the driver side of thing. Just, whoops. Uh, but, I have a million uh, of those. Say what? I said I have a million of those. Oh, dude. I'm sure because, like, well, my, actually, my grab recital got canceled because of the world was on fire. But um, I would have played Chameleon by Samut, and uh, I was really stoked to play it. I've always wanted to play it, and I felt like I was finally good enough to play it. And uh, we're on our way to pick up um, a guest artist from Australia um, two two weeks of the day before my recital was supposed to happen. I'd already had my prelim and everything. Dean's like, all right, yeah, you're good. All right. Yeah. And like, uh, I was like, okay, cool. We're on our way to pick up a guest artist just to tell him he needs to get on another plane and turn right back around. Otherwise he's going to get locked down in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, yeah, it can't happen. And I was like, damn, <laughs> like, you know, it was, I would have much rather, I probably should have done like a recording of it or something like that. Just, last minute but i was just so devastated you know like about it well that's one of the things about this year that i that i'm i lament the most for students is that the thing i push so much as a teacher is at bats like you just need to have a you need to play for people all the time whether it be dragging people in your practice room be like i'm gonna give a concert for you right now play the yeah. and then whatever that sort of thing was nearly impossible this year yeah and that's the thing, like for me, that's the way I can disarm students' performance anxiety. You know, I can't really disarm any sort of trauma induced anxiety from a childhood thing or a death or whatever. But like if, if playing is what scares you, I can fix that. You just got to play and you'll be less scared of the consequences of missing a note or getting a bad review. I mean, you can find plenty of bad reviews of soap percussion that broke my heart for a week, but. Papa got to eat, so I went back to work. Papa you know? got to eat, <laughs> and um, you can. O- I can only take that criticism so much before it just stops me from what I'm doing, and I I just couldn't. There was it wasn't an option. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, just at bats, like you know, something you're bad at, you gotta. If you want to be better at running, you gotta run. Like there's no pill you can take. You can't watch a YouTube video and be good at brain surgery. You gotta cut open a head. Yeah, and blood shoot everywhere and be like, "Oops." <laughs> Which yeah. in our case is most of the time a marimba piece. So you know, it, yeah, you, me too. Like that's you know, I there's a reason I don't play marimba solos for a living, Josh. It's uh, yeah. it's many fold, but that there's well, I'm not good at it, and <laughs> there's only like five people who do it anyway. So I mean, I right. and 
which that's a whole other whole other discussion we i guess we could have about how prominent it is but um in developing but um i'm just speaking of that bats i had to check real quick um the houston astros beat your cleveland indians last night it's it's okay i'm does it contribute to your anxiety just just based on okay all right no (laughs) not at all i'm 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 repping ohio the C is for Cleveland. Oh, all things God. Cleveland. All things Cleveland. I'll be yeah. with my. I'll be with the Indians or the Spiders if whatever they change the name to, and then the Browns and the. Are Cavs. they thinking about the Spiders for real? Mm-hmm. Wow. I think I don't know what the there was a couple names on the table, but. Oh, I forgot they were doing it. Well, I guess they anyway, should do an Indian. Yeah, it brings game. me zero anxiety at all. To be honest, I just grew up. I grew up going to Cleveland Indians games with my dad when nobody was there, and so I have a I have a soft spot in my heart for for Cleveland. Yeah, man. I mean, I went through some dark times with the Astros uh, from getting swept in the 2005 World Series by the Chicago White Sox to... Yeah, but didn't you guys cheat? No. Well, yes, but everybody Yeah, cheats. okay. All right, great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, I mean, the Indians, I'll say I'll give this for the Indians. They don't cheat. They're just consistently bad. Hey, man, didn't y'all go to a World Series recently? It was the, Nin- the Cubs World Series, right? 1995, I think. No, I think they were in 2016 World Series, right? The Indians? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you're right. This shows how much of a fan I am. I mean, I mean, I I don't think a lot of people know that I guess they consistently use that logo now, the C, cuz they used yeah, to Yeah, well, I mean, there's the Chief Wahoo. I I mean, as a kid I had the Chief Wahoo stuff and I think I've I I I understand why folks are wanting to change the logo and I think I've always just stuck with the C because it's pretty timeless and i think oh, I'm yeah. okay. like you know you're not going to get in any trouble wearing a c hat so yeah um but um but yeah anyway sorry back to anxiety i don't sorry sorry, sorry. I, I uh if i got us distracted there i'm a sports fan so i just you know general uh i i do i do reference a lot of what i do with sports just based on drawing inspiration and everything but um there seems to be a little bit of a push in from professional athletes to who deal with this stuff. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. they're in a very high pressure situation. Um, it's just different, I think, but, um, it, it, when it boils down to, it boils down to like everybody's individual journey. I, I just want to make sure that I provide, um, conversations that people share their story and, and make it known like the disclaimer. We, we let it, uh, be known that we are not, uh, saying this is the right way or the wrong way. It's just, I mean, I've had two people say they're on Lexapro now and I've had people say they didn't even try pharmaceuticals. I've had people say talk therapy, you know, um, to even think like there hasn't been anything like in my research, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of organizations for musicians specific. I think there's a few, but they're mostly regional. I think there's one in Atlanta and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Uh, I personally don't know anything that's has enough reach to, have resources for mental health treatment or at least um, provide like information on how to go about it. You know, a lot of people don't have health insurance, which is right. something, uh, another discussion, but yeah, I mean, for me, I, I'm hesitant to say that folks sh- like should or should not seek a specific type of treatment, like right. just because I, everybody's different and, um, you know, in, in full disclosure, I don't want to be on Lexapro. Like, I don't feel it doesn't make me feel bad when I take it, 
but I did a couple years ago, 2016, um, after the summer of 2016, prior to the elections, <laughs> the Trump election, mm-hmm. I went off of Lexapro with guidance from my doctor. And mm-hmm. like, so it was like a six month thing. And as I was going off of it, that's when Harvey Weinstein blew up. The Me Too movement happened. It's still happening. And all for all the right reasons, I totally get it. But that was like another social media moment where it was like everything was happening online and I had anxiety in a similar fashion to the George Floyd moment this past summer. It was just like I felt helpless. Um, And coupled with going off my Lexapro, I realized like, oh, wow, I think I'm addicted to Lexapro. Mm -hmm. Like going off of it was awful. Like I it was the only time when I felt like I genuinely couldn't function. Like I was curled up in a ball just like frozen Mm. and I called my doctor and I was like I gotta go back on it I just can't and so I went back on it and it is what it is but if I had to choose I would love to not be on it Um, that would be my choice if if I wanted to but I'm at this today I'm choosing to take it because because of many reasons one I feel better and that's my truth and you know, uh, it works for me. Mm-hmm. The, I, there was a podcast. Um, we did a TED talk years ago with for about other stuff, but one of the speakers was this, was this guy Andrew Solomon. And when you're talking about resources, I highly recommend anybody who deals with depression um, or anxiety to to look him up. He's on the TED TEDx circuit a bunch. Um, he's an author, lecturer, but he is suffers from severe manic depression. And he talks a lot about going to medical conferences and talking to like dentists and how like dentists are talking about the new fluoride toothpaste and here's the new thing to clean your teeth and blah, blah, blah. And how that technology is updating every year and there's a new thing like blah, blah, blah. But when we talk about mental health, we don't look at Lexapro as like toothpaste. Mm. Like we are getting better versions of mental toothpaste to help sort of recoat the ski slopes of your brain so you're not going down the same destructive you know grooves every time every day um your teeth aren't naturally going to stay the way they are if you don't take care of them right 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 like that's what happens they decay so you put artificial stuff in your in your face to keep your teeth there because if your teeth decay then the gums decay and then you get cancer and there's a bunch of other things that can come right well andrew solomon talks about medication for him is akin to brushing his teeth. And he's like, the dentist just looked at me like I was crazy. Like there's some stigma we have with the brain because the brain is who we are. Your teeth Mm. are not who we are. I could lose all my teeth and I'm still Josh Quillen. I just can't eat corn on the cob, you know? And And you also can get, you can also get replacements. Like, you know, like you can't get a replacement of the old noggin. Like it's, and this is the part, and this is why depression is so destructive because it makes you doubt who you are. And then when you bring that into a room with people and you force other people in the room to deal with your depression or your mental health issues or whatever, it forces other people in the room to deal with someone that you're not. Do you same, know what I mean? Same, same, hundred percent. Cause I was going to say it's the same with relation, like a, a, mm-hmm. a romantic relationship or whatever it, that person, it's exhausting for that person, especially right. if they don't, if they don't deal with that. And And so that's, even if they do deal with it, it can compound it and make it even harder because they're dealing with their own stuff. Like Mm -hmm. 
so that's the thing. Like when I, when, when I, when I said the thing earlier about being a teacher and how like my ethics are frustrated here when a student is just like, I'm feeling stress. I need a break. I need a mental health break. There's a part of me that's like, give me a hug. I'm with you. Got it. Yeah. You leaving the room causes me crushing anxiety. And that's important, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I I actually think you don't want to be here. I think you're not getting anything out of it. I feel like I'm wasting my time. I feel like I said something that is going to get me fired. Like, if I don't know the context behind why you just walked out of the room. And that's that's the thing. Like, you're as a student, you're forcing everybody else in the room to deal with your problem. And not to say that that can never be a place for that to happen, but that's a currency exchange. Mm. And for me, as someone who deals with depression and anxiety, I know how it feels when somebody puts that on me. And so I, when I walk into a sober rehearsal or I walk into Carnegie Hall or I walk into The Stone, which is a tiny little concert venue that holds like 10 people and you play for the door. I'm, I walk into every one of those all the time with some version of a crushing, debilitating mental yoke I've put on myself. Man, I can resonate with that but, so much. But it is my responsibility. Personally, I feel it's my responsibility to try to take as much of that yoke off and put it outside on the curb so that when I enter the room, everybody else can be who they are. And that makes it easier for me to be who I am, which mm -hmm. sometimes is sad. Then I can communicate to the room. I can tell my bandmates now. Guys, we're playing the show today. I'm in a bad place. Just be there for me. Jason, I'm going to need your cues to be a little bigger <laughs> today because yeah. I'm, I'm just fighting the fight. I'm, and, and they'll all look at me and be like, gotcha. But that's come from 16 years of trying to take my yoke off and learning what it means to bring my yoke in and ruin a day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, because it, you can it definitely takes a little bit of trial and error to learn how to take that yoke off. Cause totally, totally. Sometimes it's like freaking cement, you know, like it's. It's hard. It's mm -hmm. it's actually harder than playing drums sometimes. Oh, yeah. Uh, exponentially. Playing concerts uh, is the easiest thing in the world yeah. for, that I do. Of all the things I do, playing a show is the only time I don't stress. Because the way I think about it is the, the amount of hours I put in working on my craft versus working on my mental health is is like not even in the same universe. No. but But again, I think it's this like the fundamental struggle of who you are. We oftentimes look at our practice as like, I'm practicing standard and roll so I can become an orchestra musician. I can get this job. And if I get this job, if I beat out Cynthia Ye at the Chicago Symphony, I've made it. And that's who I am. It's like, well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but yeah. like, is Nancy Zeltzman a marimbist? Partially. Is she a teacher? Partially. Is she a composer? Partially. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, and I think if you ask Nancy, like, who are you? I doubt the first words out of her mouth would be marimba soloist. Like, I bet it would be some complicated, like, oh, I'm this person. I love dogs and I love gardening and I love blah, blah, blah. Michael Burrett. I don't know what he would say first thing out of his mouth. I don't know. I probably run. I like to run. You know, like, <laughs> like, and I think if. I think for me, I'm trying to be very careful that like, I'm not a member of so percussion. Like I, I am in so percussion, but I am not like when I, at my funeral, if what people say is, man, he was a great member of so percussion. I've really dropped the ball somewhere. 
Um, and I truly believe that I, or at least I, I want to believe that that's what I want. <laughs> mm. in life. I, I, yeah. And you know, I, I always reference Dean Gronemeyer because he's, he's for one, for one thing, he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. Mm. Um, he was this prominent, primarily marimba player in the 1990s and, Nature Alley, that album was full of all these compositions that people still play today. And um, one day he's like, I'm going to be a criminal defense lawyer. Mm-hmm. And now he's a criminal defense lawyer and, and, and has been for the last 20 years in Las Vegas, which is nothing short of interesting, trust me. But um, mm-hmm. that that's interesting you put it that way. Like, if I went up to Gordon Stout, what would Gordon Stout say? You know, like... You know, like what would, what would, what actually, you know, like what would Van Sy say? You know, well, so for just Gordon's a good example. Like, and, and to be clear, I don't know Gordon personally. I met him once, and we've chatted on Facebook. And right. totally big fan, lovely person. Yes, I think if I were the thing I've learned about Gordon that I had the assumption going through school was that Gordon was this like marimba pony who just did nothing but churn out marimba etudes and. Like was just like he had a barn out back and he was running on a treadmill just playing ACs all day. Like that was <laughs> that was my head as a student. I was like, well, he's in the Steve Weiss catalog. He must that must be what he's doing, you know. Yeah. But Gordon's incredibly politically active and vocal about it, more so than Nancy Zeltzman is. And that's not to say Nancy's not politically active, but I've learned like Gordon actually may be more of an advocate for like in terms of what he is okay with the world seeing him as Facebook and social media has allowed me to be like, Oh wow, Gordon's a complicated guy. Yeah. He's not just a marimba pony, <laughs> you know? Right. And it's like, of course that's true. I mean, Bob is the same way. Bob's Bob has interests outside of, you know, Bob is an amazing timpani player also loves chicken fried steak. And cause he's there from, he's from Houston, I think. Is he um, really? His dad no played idea. French horn, I believe in the Houston symphony and Bob, Bob uh, played timpani with the Canton Symphony. Bob is actually a better timpani player than a marimba player, I would say. And I'll bet he would take that as a compliment. Wow. Bob, I had no idea. <laughs> Bob teaches, I would say he's the best at teaching, of all the things he teaches, he's the best at teaching chamber music. Mm. Um, so anyway, just to say, like, yes, of course, people are people are are more than just the sort of uh, first thing you see on social media or whatever. And I, I think as a student, the quicker you can, Michael Spiro imparted this on me a lot whenever he would come to the university of Akron. He's like, have a science project. The people who are doing the interesting things in life over the long haul always have something growing mold in the fridge. Like what mm-hmm. is the thing that you piece together? And it's like, ah, that's not working. I'll come back to it. Like, Oh, this thing And for Spiro, it was adapting like Yoruba singing from, uh, um, like African drumming. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, these are broad brushes. I clearly don't know anything about it, but like doing weird hybrid versions of like Bata, large Bata drumming ensembles, but as a soloist and then both your feet are involved and there's, and then you're singing. It's like, he had this weird thing that no one else was doing. And he then sort of built this thing around him and he's working with all these amazing musicians because he's the guy that has the interesting thing. He's not just the guy that can play a tomb bow. Mm. And Tom Miller, same deal with him and people in the steel drum world. And we're working with this guy, Shota K. Talaferro, who's a beatboxer. He's not just oh. a beatboxer. He does something new with, he calls it breath art. 
And it's like some, it's like when you hear it, you're like, yeah, I could imagine you being on a stage at Coachella, but also like, I could totally imagine you playing with John Cage. Mm. That's very strange, you know? And so like, that's his weird thing growing in the fridge. And I think for students, I think if you don't have that, I can pretty much guarantee you, you're going to have, let me take that back. Having a science project will get you more relationships and friends and gigs and long-term sort of marketability than not having one and just Mm. focusing on the method books that you are told to buy and those hoops. If you are an orchestral musician, but you love like making electronic music with vegetables, do it. Fucking do it. Practice Kiji, but also at night when no one's looking, plug your electrodes into Ableton and start touching eggplants and make awesome stuff. Because when you go to audition for an orchestra, hopefully in 40 years, they'd be like, and next on the uh, required list, we'd like excerpt number three from Angelica Negron's vegetable piece, you know, <laughs> and like, and then the, the <laughs> percussion, like by that point, hopefully it's become part of the canon in the way yeah. that La- Lansky's threads did. Hopefully that, are, and then orchestras are like, you know, it, it's not crazy now for us to be like, you have to play a Bach solo, a Bach cello suite or something on a marimba or on an orchestra audition. A De La Cluse or, right. you know. But in the 1950s, Oh, how dare you? <laughs> yeah. Well, in the 1950s, it was like, hey, we need a we need a snare drummer for the Philly Orchestra. Uh, do you got anybody? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I'll enable my student. Let him do it, you know. And Ever but, now, <laughs> but now things have progressed to that point. So it's it makes it would make sense to me that it would get to that. And so having those science projects will make you more interesting. It will also teach you in terms of process how to be interested yeah. in something. And truly, is, truly interested instead of just like, jumping going through the motions of right. requirements um, and checking boxes and right um so uh, you know again i, I sorry just uh, i have about 10 more minutes here before i got a, a wrap but um same I, I i just i really hope anybody who's dealing with anxiety or a student who just feels like it's something for them that is they don't know how to get past feel free to reach out to me i'm if i've said something today that you feel is super counter to what you believe Talk to me because I'll probably learn from you or I may learn that I'm right <laughs> and you yeah. may learn that it wasn't terrible advice or vice versa, whatever. Like just reach out and, and not think like Russ Hartenberger. He's just a 75 year old version of me. And Steve Reich, like, yes, he's who he is, but he's an 85 year old version of you. Like he's been through, like, we're all trying to figure this out. And I think, and and to say that Steve and Russ don't have anxiety to say that Caroline Shaw doesn't have anxiety. You're batshit crazy. We all are trying to, to work through it. So, um, if what's stopping you from reaching out and trying to get, get advice and not feel alone is that you feel like we're unreachable or that we're not dealing with it. Just let me tell you you're wrong and you need to get past that as quick as you can. Yeah. hundred percent. I uh I can't thank you enough for your time, man. I appreciate you know everything you've said and having this great conversation. It's it's fun podcasting with another podcaster, and uh, it's also uh, under these you know circumstances and what this conversation was about um, was it was something that uh, like I said, I just I just hope people find something out of it, um, and I think they will, especially with your insight and your experiences and, 
Yeah, man. Just thank you. Thank you so much for your time. You're quite welcome. I had a therapist. I'll just end with this. I had a therapist that told me once that like one important thing to learn about your anxiety and your fears of something is that your, your initial feelings aren't necessarily proof of anything. They're not proof that you're in danger. They're not proof that you're right about this thing is then going to hypothetically happen. If, if I don't do this other thing, like, so the, trying to see things as rationally and objectively as you possibly can. Like if you're about to walk on stage and you're having in your, you feel like you're going to die. Try your best to just be like, let me call balls and strikes here. That's the stage. That's my grandma in the audience. That's a light. That's a stage hand. There's no bears here. There's no Komodo dragons. There's no snakes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it sounds silly, but like genuinely walk yourself through Martha Argerich, the piano player has crushing stage anxiety. Yeah. And there's great video of her walking around backstage, just pacing, pacing. And then she just walks out and it's just like, and just like machine guns the whole audience with the piano, you know, like, but people would have no idea. No. And so I, I think like, just uh, try to see yourself, see your, your, your anxiety, not necessarily as proof of anything initially um, and do the work to see if it actually is proof of something. And I think you'll find it will yield some good results for you. But on that yeah. note, buddy, I am grateful for your time and I'm, I'm grateful that you took the initiative um, to do it. And I hope that you find um, enjoyment out of having these conversations. And I hope other folks find at least a little solace from them as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have been finding a lot of enjoyment in these and like, with with every podcast, um, whether it's within the series or not, uh, there's something to be learned out of every one of them, especially on my end. Um, and uh, I've learned a lot over the, over this past week and a half or so. And um, I will say this: uh, this battle, this battle between self one, self two, kind of thing. Almost, uh, mm-hmm. Dean talks about it a lot. Um, and also saying maybe sometimes these thoughts are not my own. It's it's very uh, it's powerful mm-hmm. what I've learned in what you can what you can say to yourself and to your brain um, just by you know just by doing that. Um, and look, nobody has to go as extreme as I did when it comes to um, recording these conversations, um, but. Finding somebody and, and just asking somebody what they deal with, you would be surprised. You know, I, I got very good at masking what mm-hmm. I was dealing with. And um, all the way through a six to eight week anxiety episode, nobody had any idea until recently, mm-hmm. until I told them, the people that I was around during that time. So don't be afraid to just ask. I think that's the main thing I can uh, say. And, and don't be afraid to say what you need to say out loud calling balls and strikes right mm-hmm. and uh saying to yourself audibly you know this is this is something that i don't have to worry about at all and so uh well your brain this is the other thing too like everybody should your brain's just trying to keep you alive yeah it's an evolutionary ball of meat and its only job is to keep you breathing and so 
it's just trying, it's just working for you. And so give it a, give yourself a break sometimes, cut it some slack mm-hmm. and, and you know, it's just there to keep you alive. And so it makes mistakes and it misreads things. And so, um, anyway, your advice is great. And, and I thank you for your time. This has been really fun. And, um, I will do my best to get these files edited and sent over to you. Um, and then yeah. when we, when we release it, um, let me know how, like if there's a specific way you want things credited or whatever, just let me know so folks can find it as quickly yeah, as sure. possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And this will be released on both of ours, concert honesty and the room podcast. Um, thanks Josh. Uh, I appreciate it. And, uh, you can find, um, the room podcast on all major streaming platforms. It's, it's the same for concert honesty. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And go to joshquillen.com and everything's there as well. Joshquillen.com, heartwelldrums.com for me. Um, I'm doing video. So on the YouTube channel, it's my personal YouTube channel right now. Um, the support link uh, for mine for anchor.fm is in the description below. I'll have, uh, links to everybody's social media accounts and everything like that. So, uh, and concert honesty and everything. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a wrap on this one. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, He's an amazing, amazing tuner, builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, want to learn more about the goings-on in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at mango chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango chow, clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.